0: This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rabkin. First Draft highlights the voices of writers as they discuss their work, their craft, and the literary arts. My guest is Jane Smiley, who has written more than 20 books, including fiction, young adult fiction, and nonfiction. She won the Pulitzer Prize for her novel A Thousand Acres in 1992 and is a member of the American Academy of Arts and Letters. She has an MFA and a PhD from the University of Iowa. I began the interview by asking Jane Smiley about how stories and storytelling came into her consciousness as a young child.
1: Well, there were several ways. One was that I came from a very gossipy family, and they only gossiped about one another. Uh, they never talked about uh, race, religion, or politics. They only talked about uh, their their varying and differing uh, interpretations of their childhoods, and so they were always telling stories, and and they were good storytellers, and they were quite funny, and. The, my cousins and I love to get out the box of old photographs and get them to tell the stories of their childhoods and um, when my grandparents were young. And so that was one thing. So we, we learned a lot about um, being funny, telling a story, but also about differing interpretations because mom would tell a story about something that happened, and then Aunt Jane would take you aside and explain that mom was wrong and um, something, it happened, but it happened in a different way, and so we got lots of points of view, um, and some of them were very funny, and they had, both, both of my grandparents had a lot of very archaic expressions that they used, so it, it alerted us all to um, the use of language Um, I really never have understood how a person could grow up and be a writer if they didn't grow up in a gossipy family. Um, But in addition to that, I was quite a reader, except I didn't read anything serious. I only read series books. So I started out reading things like the Bobbsey Twins and then went on to Nancy Drew. I read a, a lot of horse books, and I think that's good for a kid, too, because They're not intimidating at all, and they draw you on, and you you read more and more of them.
0: And how did that transfer into not just a B.A. in English, I believe it was, but an M.A., an M.F.A., a Ph.D.? Such an academic life within literature and medieval studies.
1: Well, the real revelation for me came in eighth grade. I went to a private school in St. Louis called the John Burroughs School. And we had a pretty rigorous uh, reading schedule, starting in 7th grade. Every year we read a Shakespeare play. Um, In 7th grade we read Oliver Twist. In 8th grade we read Great Expectations. Um, In 8th grade we also read, I believe it was 8th grade, might have been ninth grade, we read um, a book called Giants in the Earth about Norwegian immigrants to the North Dakota country. And, you know, I'd trained myself to like to read, and so now I got books that were more challenging and more complex than than the series books, and I was ready for them, and I really latched on to them. I remember that um, I hated Oliver Twist. Um, I was the kid in the class who said, why won't they give him any more food when he goes up, you know, and gives his, shows his bowl to the... Um, people at the uh, orphanage where he's staying. So I wasn't very smart about it and then I really couldn't stand great expectations either and so when I came to David Copperfield in ninth grade I started oh, I put it off and put it off and put it off and finally on Saturday morning before it was due on Monday I just hid myself away in the basement and started to read and I adored it and I read all. I read it all the way to the end. And so this is something I think often happens, that um, the books that you read in middle school when you're 13, 14, are really the books that shape you and shape your ideas of what a book is. And so for me, there were several books that did that. And I um, I really uh, went on from there. And so... I couldn't get enough of books, and it was clear to me when I went to college that I was going to be an English major. I think most, um, I've never seen an author of novels who didn't grow up reading, grow up loving novels and reading novels. Dickens was a good example. So you imbibe the thing you love, and because novels always are imperfect, you know, because they're so vast and um, sort of baggy, they tend to be imperfect, so even even a kid can recognize that the author might have done this or might have done that to make it better, and that gives you a bit of a um, wedge into the idea of writing a novel. Um, you could do that, um, and it's so interesting. Why don't you?
0: You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest is Pulitzer Prize-winning writer Jane Smiley, author of Private Life. Do you think you said that novels are imperfect? Do you think novels are a moment in time for a writer's talent and vision at that moment? Would you ever go back and read something you wrote years ago and, and see that you would write it totally differently because it was representative of something just where you were in life at that time?
1: Well, every novel is representative of where you are in life at that time. And so I think I said in 13 ways of looking at the novel, every novel is a postcard from whatever state of ignorance you happen to be in at age 35 or age 45. In general, I, I do not look back. I prefer to go on. If I were going to rewrite a novel or do it on a diff- on the same theme, I would prefer it to be new.
0: Well, it seems like because your work has such a diversity that you really do go from one thing to another. And I know that you see your your books as trying to write a tragedy or trying to write a mm-hmm. comedy. I'm wondering about how voice fits into a diversity of writing.
1: Well, first, let me say that I think because I was an English major, and I, I loved reading. Um, I did not want to I, I just always wanted to try various forms out. And I saw pretty readily in my college years that each form offers different things to the reader or, you know, the watcher if the, if the form is a drama. And and other authors had tried all different forms, obviously Shakespeare. Um, and I thought, well, why not? You know, it there, all forms offer rewards, and so let's see what can be done. So I did try The Epic, which was The Greenlanders, The Tragedy, which was A Thousand Acres, Comedy, which was Moo, and Romance, which was The All True Travels and Adventures of Lydia Newton, and then I really wasn't finished, so I tried um, to combine them all um, in Horse Heaven and then add a little bit of, you know, metafiction, too. for me those experiments are always fun and um and you you do the best you can with a particular form and then or at least I do I do the best I can with a particular form and say okay well that's enough of that one and let's go on to something new so I think I'm usually motivated by curiosity and the and the and the desire to let's to try something out rather than the desire let's say to perfect it I try to bring it along as well as I can but the best thing about a novel is that no novel is perfected, perfectible, and so um, at least you can just come to the end of your rope and wipe the sweat off your back brow and hope for the best.
0: Well, what a fortunate writing life that you can try all these things and they actually get published. I, <laughs> I, I know that in 13 Ways of Looking at the Novel, I think you said you only had two things that you had started and just went nowhere.
1: I I think of, I think of myself as sort of a dogged person and not uh I think novel writing is that novel writing is for the tortoise not for the hare and if you're if you're patient enough you can almost always bring along whatever it is you're working on um to a point where it's readable and so you, you just have to be willing put the work in, and you also, once you have a lot of drafts, you have to be able to sort out in your head what you've actually done. I mean, one of the problems with writing a lot of drafts is that they get mixed up in your mind. Um, so you have to understand that that might happen, and, and you have to just be patient and keep sorting it out. But from my experience, um, if if it's more difficult and I am having a harder time with it, I get more and more interested in it because it's a puzzle or a riddle that I really want to solve. And so I might be in an extremely bad mood, but I can't give it up anyway.
0: I've read that you make yourself, although you might write more, write 1,500 words a day. And if you miss a day, you'll go 3,000 the next.
1: That really varies from book to book. One thing I like to do is start out doing about 1,250 words a day and then build up the pace so that by the end of the book I'm doing 2,000 or maybe even more Um, because I want the energy of the book to just uh, get greater and greater as we're going through it as a reader and as a writer. But some books are faster than others. I mean, when I was writing the Greenlanders," it was so much an experience of taking dictation from afar in my own mind, um, that at the end, I was writing twenty pages a day.
0: So do you find that you do a lot of drafts because then you want to go back and work maybe on the sentence level?
1: That just so varies from book to book i can't even I can't even say. Because if the book you're writing is comic, lots of times um, you need to work on that particular line or that particular witticism so that it really works. But if you work on it too hard, um, then it seems labored. So you have to find some medium, medium point between having the right words but having it seem sudden and sparkly, sort of. Whereas if you're working on... Uh, let's say, something tragic, you also don't want to put too much in, and yet you want to put enough in. So it just so varies from book to book how much you're going to need to perfect it.
0: You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rabkin. My guest is Pulitzer Prize-winning writer Jane Smiley, author of Private Life. What is your experience of writing? Some writers say it's misery and a constant struggle. Others say it's sheer pleasure.
1: I don't find it a struggle because I'm led forth. First of all, I'm not a perfectionist. I I know you can always go back and fix it. So I never say to myself, I never beat myself up about, you know, I, I put in the wrong thing or... Um, or it's not right or anything like that. I never look back on a day's work and say, oh, it all has to go and feel bad about it. I always look forward. You know, I don't even think about it or judge it until I finish the draft. And then when I finish the draft, it has its own sort of completeness. And it talks back to me. It says, you know, this part has to go or this part isn't right or... but. Um, that doesn't bother me it's just a way of moving forward i i I wouldn't say, yeah, I would say it is easy. It's easy because I love to do it. It's easy because as soon as a word is on a page, it calls out for another word to me, and then it calls out for more words, and pretty soon there you are you've had you've done your fifteen hundred words today. And it, and it almost doesn't matter what you felt about them while you were doing them, because you might think they're great and they're not, and you might think they're terrible and they are. You can't judge it now. You're going to have to judge it in six months when you come back and read it in the context of the rest of the book.
0: Do you think that planning out the book um, in your head ahead of time versus the more spontaneous experience, you end up with a different product?
1: Well, yes, I think you do, but I don't know that you can you can say ahead of time which which one you're going to do. For example, I knew since a thousand acres was based on King Lear that I had to follow the plot, and so I read the play I read King Lear five times before starting the book, and I knew when at one point about halfway through I I began veering away from the plot, and I knew that I was screwing that up, so I was going to have to go back you know, 50 or 60 pages and and rework it so that it followed the plot. The plot had its own inherent um, integrity and I couldn't screw around with that. Other books have been planned but in different ways. For example, Moo, since it, it covers a lot of, has a lot of characters, I, I made a grid and I put in the names of who showed up in each chapter? The chapters and the characters were two, were the parts of the grid, and so I would see as the characters were filling the squares of the chapters, I would see who was being lost and who and who was maybe showing up too much, and so that and so I used that grid to bring everybody along. But I've never found a way of doing one novel work for the next one. It just doesn't seem to work that way. So each novel demands um, its own kind of energy.
0: You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest today is Jane Smiley. Her most recent novel is Private Life, which tells the story of Margaret Mayfield, a post-Civil War spinster who finally marries a brilliant astronomer who turns out to suffer from mental illness. The book spans in time from just after the Civil War through World War II and takes place primarily in California, where Margaret is dealing with her obsessive husband and witnessing her dear Japanese friends being threatened with internment. What was your experience of writing this novel? Oh,
1: it's an absolute nightmare. You know, I really did not expect it to be a nightmare. I thought I expected it to be Fairly easy and fairly enjoyable, but there were so many things that I had to master that I hadn't really realized that I was going to have to master. For example, since since her husband um, is a scientific crackpot um, who really believes in Newtonian physics and poo relativity and Einstein, I had to have a grasp, at least something of a grasp, of what that conflict meant and how he might go on and on about it in a believable way. And since there was so much history I had to master a lot of history. It took place in California. I had to learn about California. I knew that I the the people it was based on were my grandfather's older sister and her husband. And they and he was kind of known as the family crackpot. And um and she was known as just a fun, interesting person who got to move from Missouri to California and became very interested in things that the family never had been interested in before, like art. And she had enough money so that she could she could buy art. And that's what led me into the, the Japanese theme. Um, but then I had to learn about that. And so I also had to come up with a way of looking at Margaret. In the first draft, Margaret told her own story. But as I read through the first draft, I realized that Margaret wasn't the type of person to actually tell her own story in a revealing way. She's too private a person for that. So the second draft had to be in the third person, and I had to be able to look into Margaret's mind and see both what was going on and how she would see what was going on. Which added a layer of complexity. Um, so, it it went through a lot more drafts than I expected it to, and um, it took me a long time to figure out how to present it and and how to structure it. Um, the first and the last scenes are are written without um, differentiating between dialogue and interior monologue. And I got that from March by um, E.L. Doctorow, which is entirely written in that way. And I thought, oh, that's really an interesting way to have to, to enter into a person's mind. So I stole that from him. My bookkeeper is in a book group and and the, the, the women in her book group were sort of my target audience. And so I gave them the last second-to-last draft, and I said, I want your suggestions. And they all read it, and they gave me wonderful suggestions. And um, and then that really helped me
0: finish it. You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest is Pulitzer Prize-winning writer Jane Smiley, author of Private Life. Along with Private Life, her most recent books are a series for young adults called The Horses of Oak Valley Ranch. They center on one girl and her experience growing up and tending to her family's horses. I'm wondering if you had to change your mindset to write for teens or what that experience was like for you?
1: Actually, I really enjoyed it. A, because I could put all the horses in. And almost all the horses are ones that I've either owned or known well. And so I, to explore their personalities was an absolute unalloyed pleasure for me. The other thing is I think there is an age that you are, that, that we're an age that you no matter how old you get, you remain a certain age. And for me, that's 14. And so, when, um, so to go into the mind, of a fourteen-year-old, um, it's just a pleasure. The thing, the thing that you can do when you're writing in the mind of a fourteen-year-old is just tell the story. She can, she can speculate about certain things, or she can have certain other thoughts. But there's something about just the unfolding of the story that's the most important thing, and so that's enjoyable. And um, I didn't. I found those books to be very enjoyable because of the horses. Because of her, she's um, she's an interesting girl. She wants to keep out of. She just sort of. She's a very observant girl. Um, she pretty much keeps to herself. Uh, she's not popular. She's not unpopular, um, and she. But she enjoys her friends, and she enjoys observing them. And in the same way that she observes the idiosyncrasies of the horses that come to the ranch, she also observes the idiosyncrasies of the kids at school. Um, so, and the, obviously the idiosyncrasies of her parents and her, her brother too. So no, I just enjoyed the I just enjoyed the heck out of those books. And there's a fifth one coming out in October.
0: So. We've talked about so many different things and sort of focused on your diversity, and one of the things I asked was if you can read a passage from an author that speaks to you or influenced you as a writer, and obviously you've read so much. Mm -hmm. So I'm wondering um, what you chose and and why.
1: Um, I chose Njál Saga, which is the longest and most well-respected Icelandic saga, and obviously that influenced the Greenlanders, and it influenced my idea of, what is possible to do with a novel. And I read Meow Saga in graduate school. We translated it. It took us an entire two semesters. Um, And so it really seeped into my head, you know, word by word, the way things do when you're translating them. And so this is just the beginning of Meow Saga. There was a man called Mord Fiddle, who was the son of Sigvat the Red, Mord was a powerful chieftain and lived at Votel in the Rang River Plain. He was also a very experienced lawyer, so skillful indeed that no judgment was held to be valid unless he had taken part in it. He had an only daughter called Un. She was a good-looking, refined, capable girl and was considered the best match in the Rang River Plain. The scene of the saga now moves west to the Bredafjord Dales where a man called Huskull Dahlakoltson lived at Huskullstead in Lox River Dial. He had a half-brother called Fruit Herjelsson, who lived at Fruitstead. They had the same mother. Frut was a handsome man. He was tall, strong, and skilled in arms, even-tempered and very shrewd, ruthless with his enemies and always reliable in matters of importance. On one occasion, Haskold was holding a feast for his friend. Fruit was there, sitting next to him. Haskold had a daughter called Halkerd, who was playing on the floor with some other girls. She was a tall, beautiful child with long, silken hair that hung down to her waist. Haskold called to her. Come over here to me. She went to him at once. Her father tilted her chin and kissed her, and she walked away again. Then Haskold asked Fruit, What do you think of her? Do you not think she is beautiful? Hrut made no reply. Osgold repeated the question. Then Hrut said, The child is beautiful enough, and many will suffer for her beauty. But I cannot imagine how thief's eyes have come into our kin. So you can see he set up the whole, he set up the setting, the characters, the plot right there. In one page and um the icelandic sagas are extremely eco- economical in that way and they they're very adventurous
0: all right and how about if you can read something that you wrote maybe it was hard to write or something that changed or something you just feel you
1: yes i'll just read the opening bit of private life since that was very hard <laughs> okay Stella, who had been sleeping in her basket in the corner, leapt up barking and then slipped out the bedroom door. Margaret heard her race down the stairs. It was early, fog still pressed against the two bedroom windows. Margaret sat up, but then she lay back on her pillow, dejected. She must have missed the telegram, and now her husband, Andrew, had returned. She woke up a bit more and listened for the opening of the front door, but no... There hadn't been a telegram. She remembered that she'd looked for one. Had she not locked the front door? She stilled her breathing and listened. With the war on, all sorts of characters crammed Vallejo these days. Suddenly a little frightened, she slid out of bed and stealthily pulled on her robe, then opened the door of her room a bit wider and crept out far enough to peer over the banister. There was the top of a head, dark, not Andrews, and by the dull light of the hall windows, the houndstooth jacket, a figure bent over to pet Stella, and Stella wagged her tail. This is reassuring. Margaret took a deep breath. Now the figure stood up, looked up, and smiled. She said, put your clothes on, darling. We're going for a ride.
0: And so that was hard for you to write?
1: Um, it was hard for me to get to that point of knowing what to put at the beginning of the novel.
0: And are you happy with it now?
1: Yeah, I like it.
0: So um, I have a few questions I ask all my authors. Um, Where do you write?
1: I have a little office in my house. It's off the bedroom and off the kitchen.
0: And what do you do or where do you go to get away from writing?
1: I don't have to get away from writing, but, you know, sometimes I find that if I, when I go to the barn, for example, um, ideas that had been sort of, Uh, shapeless in my mind. They, They get shaped as I'm driving over to the barn or as I'm riding the horse or whatever. So probably the barn.
0: And who do you show your work to first to get feedback?
1: Every day I read what I wrote the day before to my husband. He either laughs or he doesn't or he yawns or he says, I don't understand this or he says, that's the wrong word for that. And so he's my feedback.
0: And how have you dealt with rejection?
1: Well, it depends on who's rejecting. (laughs) You know, when I was younger and sending out stories to magazines, this is when I was like in my 20s and 30s, what I did was I would take the rejection letters and tape them on the wall above the sink so that while I was washing the dishes, I would read them and get used to them. And I think that taught me to just move on. Rejection letter is a business letter. It's not a personal letter.
0: And what is your favorite word? You've been listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. My guest was Pulitzer Prize-winning fiction writer Jane Smiley. Some of her novels include A Thousand Acres, Moo, Horse Heaven, and Private Life. You can follow First Draft on Facebook. Just look for First Draft, a dialogue on writing, and click like, and on Twitter at First Draft APR. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com. The theme music for First Draft was produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. Thanks for listening.